Hey there, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick, exciting announcement to share with all of you. For the first time on Time for Coffee, we have a free giveaway to offer you. In honor of the season of giving that we're all immersed in right now, I am so excited to tell you that Time for Coffee has 50 global giving gift cards with $25 already loaded on them to give out to Java junkies between now and Christmas. In case you're not familiar with global giving, it's the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits, donors, and companies in nearly every country around the world. These gift cards will make wonderful stocking stuffers or thank you gifts or secret Santa presents to give your colleagues or your professors or guidance counselors, your mentors, your mailman, you get the idea. Even that cute guy or girl you want to get to know better but don't want to give them something romantic, at least not yet. The way these gift cards work is that you can redeem them by going on to the Global Giving website and picking any of the hundreds of different amazing projects Global Giving is featuring in countries around the world. Then your $25 gift card can be used to support any of these projects. And the gift card is non-denominational with a super festive holiday vibe. And all you have to do to win one of these electronic gift cards is to email me at andrea at time the number four coffee.org. That's Andrea at time the number four coffee.org. Just say, hey, I'd love a global giving gift card. And the first 50 people to hit me up for one of these gift cards will get it in their email box on Monday, December 17th, giving you plenty of time to figure out who you want to give it to. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy holidays and enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of Time for Coffee. Are you interested in politics or peace and conflict policy? What about working for an international nonprofit that operates in some of the world's most fragile and conflict-affected countries? Well, my next guest is a senior global advocacy advisor at one of the world's largest international NGOs, and she only graduated from college in 2011. But before I introduce you to her, if you haven't already signed up for the Java Junkies Journal, that's our weekly newsletter that gives you a lowdown on the five new episodes we're dropping that week, then please head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, you can check out all the other episodes of T4C that are organized thematically by the profession of the person I interviewed and by wellness, health, and self-care. So grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is Madeline Rose, a senior global advocacy advisor at Mercy Corps, a global humanitarian and development organization. Madeline is a strategist, an advocate, and an innovative problem solver who's dedicated to tackling society's most complex problems. She's currently leading Mercy Corps' global advocacy efforts to reduce global levels of violence and to prevent violent conflict. Madeline, 
Welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Hi, Andrea. Yes, I am. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, we're actually doing this interview bright and early on a Monday morning, bright and early at least on the West Coast where Madeline is. And we should tell Java Junkies, Ms. Rose, that you are not exactly a morning person. So I was actually kind of surprised that you suggested a morning slot. (laughs) Well, you know, just had to get it in. And I'm trying to become a better morning person now that I'm on the West Coast. So since you and I work together, Andrea, I am getting up a little bit earlier. And you really do sound Um, awake. We're three hours. Yeah, we're three hours behind. So I have to get up. I usually start my days at 7am now so that I can catch folks on the East Coast at their 10am. A morning person better than I would be up at six. But the best I manage to do is seven. We should also tell Java junkies that you and I actually used to work together very closely when I was at Mercy Corps. And I had the pleasure of getting to see you do your thing up close and personal. And I have to say, holy cow, Madeline, you are a senior global advocacy advisor because I knew you when you started at Mercy Corps in January 2014, almost five years ago, and you came in as a policy advisor. Within a year, you were promoted to senior policy advisor because it was apparent you were able to do that work at such a high level. And not surprisingly, you've been promoted steadily over the years, including most recently over the summer when you became a senior global advocacy advisor. So huge congratulations. Thank you, Andrea. (laughs) What do you do in this role? Yeah. So the senior global advocacy advisor, which is quite a mouthful. Usually I just say global advocacy advisor to shorten it when I'm meeting folks, but it's actually a new position at Mercy Corps. So as you know, I spent four years in Washington, DC, working on Mercy Corps advocacy portfolio with US government, which was day to day interaction to advocate and push certain policy changes within the US government primarily. And what Mercy Corps recognized over the years was that trying to influence US policy and UK policy, for example, only gets us so far, right? So of course, the US and the UK are the largest aid donors in the world. They have sort of unique geopolitical power in the world. So of course, we need to continue to sort of shape the foreign policies of those countries. But we felt that we weren't doing enough and that the world is becoming much more horizontal, much more decentralized. Power is really decentralizing and changing. And we as an organization that works globally, need to shift the way we work to manage and engage with these new levers of power. So my position was the first sort of global advocacy position we've created with the goal of building out our advocacy that we do around the world. So my new job is focused on supporting country teams in countries where we work. So Guatemala, Jordan, Lebanon, Libya, Kenya, helping those country teams develop and implement advocacy strategies in their countries with their governments to support the global priorities that we have as an agency. So Madeline, can you give us an example of one of the countries that you've been supporting in their advocacy goals and what they're trying to do? Yeah, so Guatemala is a good example. So, you know, Guatemala has one of the highest homicide rates in the world. It's in a part of the region alongside El Salvador and Honduras called Central America that has, you know, this long legacy of violence. Violence against women is very prevalent. Violence against young people is very prevalent, particularly around gangs, but also interfamilial violence. 
And, and so it's this country where, you know, the country really needs to manage and contain its sort of violence problem if it's going to achieve development and economic growth and inclusivity and all of these sort of lofty goals that the country sets. Like violence is clearly holding the country back from achieving a lot of its development goals. So Mercy Corps has worked there for almost 20 years. And right now we're implementing this large urban violence prevention program. And so as part of that, the team is working to improve the country's policies for violence prevention. So we have about six full-time advocates. That's not what their title is, but they're effectively these like city-level advocates or municipal-level advocates. And they're helping the municipal-level governments so say like the government of San Francisco, it's called a municipality, but it's basically a city. So they're trying to help them develop like violence against children policies, violence against women policies. So to make sure that all these big cities have policies to govern what the city does to try and reduce and prevent violence. So that's sort of one example. And then at the national level, which we're working very closely with the ministries to implement and develop a national violence prevention strategy. So our team was involved in those efforts. So I sort of give technical advice that I've gone down there, done advocacy trainings. I'm really helping that team with what I would call policy harmonization. So if one city has a violence against children policy and it's working well, what about it is working and what would we replicate for another city? And then we take all of that and we feed what we're learning and what's going well in Guatemala up to the global level. So at the United Nations, at the World Bank, with major donors, we're trying to gather lessons learned and evidence of what's working there to feed into global policy making decisions around violence prevention investments. Madeline, can you kind of break down for Java junkies how you and our colleagues in Guatemala mapped this stuff out, did the power mapping, did the identification of how you're going to measure success, how you measure impact in the strategy that you develop? Because I think so often when advocates think about trying to affect change, they might start in the middle or they might start at a weird spot instead of starting with the right building blocks. Could you lay that out for us? Yeah, I mean, I think success metrics is one of the hardest things, certainly in violence prevention. In the field of violence reduction and prevention, measurement is very difficult. So take food security, for example. With food security, if if we want to improve the food security of a community, you can measure pretty tangible things like nutrition rates and food supply rates and the quality of food going into a community and access to food, which is like purchasing power. Does every household in the community have enough money to buy healthy food, things like that. We've developed really robust systems of measurement and proxy measurement for things like food security. We're not quite there yet in the violence field, so to speak. And so how do you know if we're looking at, quote, a hotspot neighborhood where there's been decades of gang violence, for example, and we can identify young people that we think maybe more vulnerable to recruitment by a gang because they have a broken household or because they've been out of school. We've developed vulnerability criteria, but now we're kind of in that process of how do you develop metrics for prevention? So if a young person gets access to school, is that individual less likely to join a gang? Probably. But can we prove it after five years of a program? We're not sure. So on the technical side, that's really what the field is working on right now. It's like, what are rigorous measurements for violence prevention that we can really start to 
to organize ourselves around. On the advocacy side, yeah, I think that the biggest challenge is, okay, step one, does a policy exist? So some of our advocates, they've worked with the city to write and pass policy that says the government of Villanueva is committed to preventing violence against children in all these ways. So violence in the schools, you know, violence on the streets, violence in the household. We've helped them write a comprehensive policy, which is sort of step one. But now we're working on implementation. So it's one thing to have, you know, pretty words on paper. It's another to really galvanize investment and to change the way a government works day to day in order to implement that policy. So then you set metrics for implementation. So, okay, is there funding for these programs? Are there staff to implement it? Things like that. So yeah, you kind of just keep adding metrics as you go along, (laughs) depending on hitting sort of, you always have initial goals and then long-term goals, and then you kind of keep working as you hit different pieces of them. And then the piece for power mapping, how do you work through with the team to identify who the, and I'm using a buzzword here, but who the stakeholders are, who are the interested parties that you can mobilize or influence to affect the change that you want? Yeah, so stakeholder mapping is one of the modules that we train on in our advocacy training. It's a very, the way that we do it, it's a pretty human process. So you get together with your colleagues and you start to ask yourself that question. So you say, the first question, who has formal power, right? So the Ministry of Education, for example, in in this country, the Department of Education in the United States, they have the formal power to implement national education curriculum. Or in Guatemala, the police have the formal power over violence containment policies, right? So you start with sort of identifying the formal power holder. And then from that person, you sort of backwards map. So who has oversight? A legislative body might have the ability to set policy and do oversight on policy. So you need to think about what you're going to ask of the legislature. Some countries have parliaments. There's a lot of different sort of pieces in the policy system. So you're going to backwards map around those entities and find out who is included in the circle of power, sort of step one. And then we focus on non-formal power holders. So in the advocacy world, that's sometimes called influencers or just stakeholders. But you think about people who influence the people with power through various means. So it could be academics and think tanks and nonprofits, right? So if there's sort of experts in any country that work on these issues, who have the ideas, so this sort of civil society sector is always very important. And we're a part of that. But then there's also informal stuff, right? Like people's lives. We did a training with some Chinese nonprofits and they were like, oh, well, the president's wife has a lot of informal power. And so we must work with her. Of course, Michelle Obama was very famous in this regard in the United States in the last administration of having her own sort of initiatives, right? And opinions. So then you back map non-formal influencers and you sort of build a coalition. So the fun part of being an advocate is you sort of are like a puppeteer in a way, right? So you sort of look at this map of people and you get to think about, okay, how do we move each of these people in this map in a cohesive direction in order to get the change that we want? So it's a very fun part of advocacy. I love that image because at its best, a really good puppeteer is invisible. What you're looking at are the the puppets themselves. And the hand of the puppeteer ideally is not seen. Madeline, as 
a master puppeteer. Can you talk us through what you do in terms of a day-to-day basis? And I recognize every day is different and there's sometimes you're on the road and there's sometimes that you're working from your home office. But can you give us a sense of what a week is like in the life of a senior global advocacy advisor at Mercy Corps? Yeah. So right now, my days are usually one of two things. I'm either on Skype all day and on the phone all day talking to our staff around the world about a particular advocacy problem and giving them ideas and advice or I'm in a country training and doing workshops. So we have an advocacy curriculum. So I'll go, you know, I'm getting ready for a big month of travel in November. I'm going to Nepal, Indonesia, and Peru, all in support of a bunch of teams that I'm training. So on the days that I'm at home on the phone, you know, the way that I would like articulate that is it's sort of like a consultant. Like I'm on the phone giving advice and saying, okay, in Kenya, we have this opportunity to facilitate citizen input into a policy around pastoralism and land. So in Kenya and lots of parts of Africa, but in East Africa in particular, there's been decades of violence between pastoralists and farmers because of disagreements over land policy. So our team is right now looking at organizing civil society, having these like policy-focused dialogues so that we can help communities represent, advocate, and articulate their desires for policy change to the government around a particular policy. So I'll jump on the phone, just talk through tactical or strategic challenges that they're having. Like, do you have access to the government? Do you know who you need to call? Do they, things like that. And then, yeah, when I'm in country, I'm usually training and just kind of having similar conversations, but in person. (laughs) Great. Madeline, in preparing for this interview, and I actually did prepare, I went through your CV and you talk about how you have the ability to manage and build complex stakeholder relationships, and we've just kind of teased that out a little bit, with government policy and advocacy partners. Can you talk a little bit about how you and my former colleagues at Mercy Corps conceived of this piece of legislation that I'll be talking about in just a moment as a solution to the bigger problem and how you moved it through the various institutions of power in this country in Washington, D.C. And the piece of legislation is the Global Fragility and Violence Reduction Act of 2018. Yes. So the Global Fragility and Violence Reduction Act was introduced in March of this year, but it's something that we have been working on with Congress since 2016 in the most sort of technical sense, arguably something that the U.S. government has been working on for decades, right? So a piece of legislation that the bill most mirrors is the authorization for the president's HIV AIDS relief bill, PEPFAR. And by president, we mean George W. Bush. Yes. So for folks who have studied sort of international relations at this point in 2018, they've likely studied the U.S. commitment and movement to end HIV AIDS. So this was in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. You know, the HIV AIDS epidemic has just taken over the public attention of the world. You had hundreds of people dying every day. The HIV AIDS epidemic became a global crisis. It was sort of designated by the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization as a global epidemic and crisis, similar to you know, Ebola, which we dealt with a couple of years ago in West Africa. So, you know, you had this terribly tragic and terrifying and contagious disease that was spreading in sub-Saharan Africa. And the U.S. government said, you know, we have this 
moral responsibility to do more to end this crisis. This was President George W. Bush had just become president. And he announced that the U.S. government was going to go all in to eradicate HIV AIDS and announced this idea, which was this president's emergency package for HIV AIDS relief, which became coined as PEPFAR. So President Bush committed verbally that he was going to invest, his administration would invest. But saying that rhetorically as a president is one step. The U.S. Congress is the one who actually has to foot that bill. The U.S. Congress is the arbiter of U.S. taxpayer dollars. So Congress worked with the president to authorize this piece of legislation to say yes, sort of make good on that promise. And the U.S. government ended up committing $5 billion and creating a new office in the State Department and USAID and launching this incredibly expansive, complex set of programs all around the world to help eradicate HIV AIDS. Here we are just over 15 years later, and the HIV AIDS epidemic certainly not over, but it's broadly perceived that the U.S. government's HIV-AIDS package, PEPFAR, made an unparalleled difference in turning the tide of that disease and saving millions and millions of lives, potentially. So Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do with the Global Fragility and Violence Reduction Act is mirror that approach, but looking at violence as the public health problem du jour, the public health problem that we're trying to solve. And so the legislation authorizes the U.S. government, very similarly to PEPFAR, to try to launch a global form policy initiative focused on reducing and addressing the root causes of recurrent violence and violent conflict. So that's the idea. The bill has been introduced in both the House and the Senate. It's passed out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and it still has some ways to go. But in terms of how that fits in this overall vision of sort of global change, right, is this is the U.S. government's piece. The U.S. government is the largest funder of foreign aid globally. The country enjoys unique geopolitical power in world. And so this bill is, we're hoping, can help shape the U.S. government's approach to partnering with countries like Guatemala or with the Congo, the DRC, places where there have been decades and decades of violence and we haven't quite gotten it right. You know, violence is still continuing to derail countries' propensities to develop their ways. And so it's really trying to take this kind of global hotspot approach and say, can we do a better job of sort of breaking the cycle of violence in 10 of these hotspot countries around the world? That's where we are. Happy to talk a little bit more about the strategy, but essentially it's sort of strategic background for Mercifor was to say, as we work in all these countries, as we're trying to move progress globally, how do we improve U.S. policy on this topic and U.S. contributions to the global effort? And so we're hoping that this bill will help galvanize more U.S. investment in violence prevention programs around the world and a number of other related things that go along with investment. Mm. So as one of the puppeteers, (laughs) one of the master puppeteers behind the introduction of this act. And you mentioned, Madeline, that it took and has taken years of work and of gradually building a coalition in support of this, both within the nonprofit community, as well as on the Hill. Can you talk about how you built support, how you built up a coalition and began the influencing process to get it introduced, which is huge. Of course, the biggest win will be once it's passed. And I'm very confident it will be one day because I think we have the facts on our side, hopefully. But having said that, this is a slog and it will take years more of effort to get it through. Yeah. I mean, one of the 
humbling maybe is the word, slightly depressing, but also inspiring things about advocacy, especially U.S. government advocacy for folks thinking about going into it. Policy change takes a long time. So PEPFAR is, is a sort of a rare example where you already have the president and Congress and kind of the whole world on your side. But in general, folks say for a bill of this nature, something that's sort of this big and has this many implications for policy change, it can take anywhere from three to 10 years from like the insemination of the idea, sort of a weird verb to use, but you know, the introduction of the idea to the discourse and then passage, yeah, three to 10 years, which was as a young, tenacious, impatient person. And my first few years in DC, that was really hard for me to swallow. But yes, it does. These things take a really long time. So you have to learn to balance sort of tenacity and patience. But yes, so in terms of this legislation, I think the first thing that is important for any advocacy effort and was critically important on this bill is facilitating consensus on the problem. So what we had to do was to sort of convince our community, meaning other humanitarian development organizations like Oxfam and the International Rescue Committee and these other notable groups that you may have heard of, let's say the children and others. So we had to sort of convince our sector to agree that violence and violent conflict was one of the most important problems that our community needed to prioritize with the U.S. government. So you build up sort of statistics around that, like violence and violent conflict is the main driver of today's refugee crisis. We've got 68 million people displaced, the largest number of displacement that we've ever recorded in modern history. And that's because principally because of war. 90% of people, according to the U.N. and the World Bank, are fleeing not because of poverty or lack of food, but because of violence and conflict and persecution. So you have to take that message, that collective problem statement, and you have to convince everyone else in this foreign policy map, this like stakeholder map that you do, that this is the paramount problem of the day. Like this is the biggest problem. This is what it is. You have to get people, Andrea, a term that you taught me, like singing from the same songbook. Like you have to get people in the National Security Council and in Congress and in the media, you have to get a lot of people kind of repeating the same problem statement so that you successfully secure the attention span of policymakers who are really busy and have a lot of problems to solve. So I would say that was step one. We had to package and communicate the fact that violence and violent conflict was the biggest inhibitor to U.S. foreign aid goals because we continue to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars every year on humanitarian assistance, like to keep people alive. But what are we actually doing to prevent wars in the first place? So that was, that took, yeah, a year, year and a half of like going around town and convincing everyone to agree that something needed to be done on violence prevention globally. And then step two is, okay, so what's the response? So step two is then you you go through that same process of facilitating consensus, but now it's about the solution set. So, okay, we get it, Madeline, like violence, violent conflict is the biggest problem with foreign policy and foreign aid. What should we do about it? So that's where policy development comes in. And in reality, these two steps are often being done concurrently. So as an advocate, you have to sort of be thinking about the problem statement and making sure you're convincing people on that. And you have to sort of already have the policy solution in your head. So you're kind of constantly, it's a dual track process. But yeah, then you start working policy development. So 
in this particular case, you as an advocate work with the U.S. administration. So State Department, USAID, the Department of Defense, the National Security Council. So all of the folks that implement U.S. foreign policy every day. And then Congress. So the U.S. Congress is the one who writes foreign policy. So those are the two kind of main power holders in this scenario. And again, you work on a dual track process of talking with them about feasible solutions, and then you end up with a bill. <laughs> Happy to talk more about it, but I would say those, yeah. are the two, those are the two big like process steps. Absolutely. And I would just add that there are times, and certainly in the experiences that you and I shared at Mercy Corps, where you're also seeking to influence other departments in the U.S. government around foreign aid, whether it's the Treasury Department, whether it's the Commerce Department, whether it's the, you know, fill in the blank. But there are so many other agencies, unfortunately, because the foreign aid budget is split across like 27 different government agencies. So it's a bit nutty. Madeline, can you talk about how important it is for Java junkies to learn the intricacies of SFOPs? And I know that that acronym doesn't mean anything to most Java junkies or even to many of their parents who aren't in the policymaking world. But trust me, if you're interested in influencing issues that fall under the realm of foreign or international affairs, then the state and foreign operations appropriations budget or SFOPs is something you're going to want to learn inside and out. Yeah. So I think the main thing to learn as early as you can, if you want to work in U.S policy in general is just the relationship between policymaking and budgeting and appropriations. And you can learn it. It sounds intimidating. You know, I'm a West Coaster. I'm from California. I knew nothing. I grew up not really knowing much about the political process. And I moved to DC specifically to learn it. So a term that folks sort of use in DC is how the sausage gets made, right? Like we all know that laws exist, but you really don't know until you either are in it or you study it. Like, what are the different pieces of the policymaking and implementation process? And in that regard, foreign policy, there's policymaking, which the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee are principally tasked to do. So those are the policymaking entities. So they say U.S. government should support the governments of Lebanon and Jordan to increase their rule of law and the health of their institutions. Like that, it is U.S. government policy to do that. Okay, that's great. Again, that's sort of framing the policy. But then to implement policy requires money. So that is where SFOPs, which is the state foreign aid appropriations piece, comes into play. So they say, okay, they look at all the policies that have been made by their counterparts in the relevant committees, and they say, how are we going to budget and appropriate to achieve those policy goals? So then the SFOPs folks, which are often different people. So you can go online, you can look at who's on which committees. Senator Lindsey Graham right now is the chair of the Senate SFOPs committee. And that's why, you know, he's often talked about in the news as having a lot of foreign policy power is because he sits as the chair of SFOPs, as Andrea said. So that's where he derives his sort of foreign policy power from. Basically, he's the guy that can write or delete checks that we spend in a country. So he has a lot of unique power in that regard. So SFOPs, they go through a process of annually looking at what money do we actually spend against our policy goals? Is that money effective? Should we be spending more or less? And that sort of back and forth between the policymakers and the appropriators is how you get 
policy out of the U.S. Congress for foreign policy. And then you have the folks who implement it. Again, so that is your, as Andrea said, the 27 different departments that actually implement U.S. foreign <laughs> policy day to day, which is, is crazy and big frustration to folks in Congress. But yeah, and, and you know, every day when I'm talking to my colleagues around the world, learning the policy making process, learning how the sausage is made is really hard everywhere. So in Indonesia, where I'm getting ready to go, we've been mapping very similar. It's like, okay, well, there's one state entity that's supposed to be in charge of resilience, but there's also this other one. And so what we talk about in the advocacy world is like policy coherence, like, okay, let's go backwards, follow the money, follow the policy, follow the money, and let's really figure out what's happening here. In the US context, you want to look at your foreign relations committee, and then your appropriations counterpart. And learning the relationship between those two is a really good trick to accelerate you in a foreign policy career in DC. Great. Madeline, I know we don't have time to go into each place you've worked over your career, but could you very quickly just tell the story about how you learned all of this when you were working in U.S. Congressman Mike Honda's office, but more importantly, how you got that job, how when you graduated from Occidental College, and we'll get into that in a moment, but how did you get your job in Congressman Honda's office where you learned the intricacies of the SFOP's sausage-making process. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I'm from California. I went to college in Los Angeles at Occidental College, which is a wonderful school. And I had never been to the East Coast until my senior year of college. And when I got an internship at the United Nations, which Occidental supported. So I was super lucky in order to sort of, you know, get my feet wet in terms of real policymaking and policy oversight. Spent six months in New York, loved it, but but kind of learned through that process that I didn't think that the United Nations was where I wanted to go. I realized through that experience that the power that the U.S. government exerts within the U.N. system is incredibly unique and unparalleled. And that as an American, if I really wanted to help advance equality and justice and peace in the world, the best thing that I could do was to influence U.S. foreign policy because we are such a behemoth in the U.N. in terms of the policies that we set and the power that we exert really shapes a lot of international relations. So I went home, I graduated, and I had no idea what to do. And a friend of mine and my mom basically said, why don't you just move to D.C. and figure it out? So it was really my mom that pushed me. I thought I would just stay on the West Coast and try to get a job at a think tank or, I don't know, find some foreign policy locus in Los Angeles. But my mom really said, there's no better way to learn it than in the belly of the beast. Why don't you go? So I moved out. I was offered, fortunately, to live at a friend's house for free. So I didn't have to worry about money and rent at first and kind of pounded the pavement, which is what a lot of folks in DC do. I sent my resume to anyone that I thought that I could. I asked for coffees at Brookings Institution and CSIS and all these think tanks that I had read. And finally, after a couple of weeks of not landing anything, again, my mom just encouraged me. She's like, why don't you go to Congressman Honda's office? He's your member of Congress. They're supposed to help you. That's what they're there for. And so I reached out. I asked for coffee. I got a meeting with the staff assistant and they said, look, we don't have anything paid, but do you want an internship? And I didn't want it, honestly. I, so I called my mom and I said, I don't, I was like, I don't know. I don't really care about like, I don't want to be on the Hill. I want to be doing foreign policy now. 
And she said, this is a step in the door. You never know where it will lead. Like you don't have anything else to do. <laughs> Why don't you just do it? And so, yeah, I took an unpaid internship, which is very typical in DC, unfortunately, but was quickly promoted to a full paid staff assistant position and can talk about the Hill experience more from there. But yeah, it's a very typical story of just... It's all about listening, listening to your to mother. Your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm half kidding, but Java junkies sometimes... Older folks, we have a little wisdom that is worth at least maybe a few minutes of your time. So anyway, Madeline, before we get into your time at Occidental, I would love to talk with you very quickly about a different kind of advocacy, about self-advocacy. In this case, how Java junkies can respectfully get the recognition they deserve for their hard work and their accomplishments on the job. And I have to say, in my experience, this has been something that women aren't as good at as men. And maybe it's generational. I certainly hope that's the case. Maybe it's more my generation. I'm 54 years old. And maybe it's not quite as big a deal for those of you who were born in the 90s or the 2000s, you know, and power to you. But what advice do you have for Java junkies who may not know how to approach their bosses, their supervisors to get a raise or to get a boost in their job title, something you've been very good at? I think the most important thing is to find mentors. So I was really lucky. Congressman Honda's office is, well, he's now retired from service, but for over 15 years, I mean, Congressman Honda's office was known as an incredibly empowering, as one of the best offices to work in on the Hill. I mean, the chief of staff was incredibly mindful and inclusive and very equal, but the staffers that I met there, many of them kind of quickly took me under my wing. So other sort of young, early 30s women who were legislative assistants full time, I became friends with many of them and I would ask them for advice, honestly, both men and women. But I think that almost eight years since working there, I now have the opportunity to to mentor younger women. So I think this mentoring network is really important because you can read a book, you can read online advice, but the norms around pay and title and all of those things are a little bit different in every sector. So I would just say, you know, whether you're looking for a job or if you land one, definitely prioritize making one to three good mentor relationships where you find people that you can kind of rely on and check in with to get advice on some of these more difficult, just professional trajectory issues. You know, I wouldn't say I was always good at it. I, in multiple of my jobs, when I left, I got replaced by someone who got paid more than me and had a better title than me. You know, I was always just happy to have a job that I loved and to work hard and put my head down and didn't think that much about money and felt grateful to have a job. I think in your 20s, you feel like just grateful to have a job at all. So you don't think about the value of your work. So yeah, I think find a mentor particularly if you're a woman, find a female mentor and find someone that you can really rely on and ask for advice about salary and title and workplace dynamics. Mm, Great. Thanks so much. Madeline, you got your BA at Occidental and you graduated in 2011. You got your degree in diplomacy and world affairs. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Not specifically. I mean, I knew that I wanted to work on U.S. foreign policy. I knew that I wanted to work in international relations. But no, I didn't know how to do that. What classes do you wish you had taken that you didn't take that in hindsight, you're now thinking, oh, man, (laughs) I wish I could go back and take X, Y, and Z. I think right now there's a huge, obviously, (laughs) 
huge data revolution. So I wish that I had taken data analysis and data management classes. If there's anything I'm bumping up against in terms of like a capacity constraint, it's that I do not have the skills for analyzing big data sets and big data systems and really making data-driven decisions. It's something that we talk about all the time now in advocacy. It's evidence-based policy and data-driven decision-making. But in the social sector, we don't actually do that as well yet. So I would definitely say if you have an opportunity to take data analysis classes while you're still in school, definitely do it. Or if you're like me, I was at a liberal arts college that didn't really have and we had computer science, but it wasn't like in my major. There wasn't like an option for mm-hmm. a, you know, data science for foreign policy making, right? Like that didn't exist. Yeah. So, so one thing I'm looking at now is like there's these data boot camps like General Assembly or the UC system. Schools will offer online courses or just short term courses that you can take for you know data analysis. And I think it's obviously the way of the future. So that will definitely give you an edge in policy. If you also can analyze big data sets, you're going to be asset. Yeah. The advocates right now. Madeline, what other extracurriculars were you involved in at Occidental outside of the classwork that in hindsight, you now say, wow, like I was really honing skills in whatever those clubs, volunteer work, maybe jobs that you had or whatever it was that you now say it was actually valuable to you as a professional. Well, my main extracurricular in college was basketball. I played college basketball at Occidental. You know, being competitive is pretty helpful in advocacy. You have to manage it as an adult. But yeah, so I think being a basketball player, being sort of committed and being selfless and being part of a team and just being willing to put in the hours and the time it takes to be excellent, right? I mean, that's sort of the core of being an athlete. So that certainly, I think I've always really valued the fact that I played a sport for so long and was committed to that. But I guess secondly, I started our Diplomacy and World Affairs Majors Association at Oxy. So I got there and there was no like club. There wasn't a majors club the same way there would be like computer science club, like students were in the major who also just hang out and do things. So I started our club. I was the co-founder and co-president. And I guess in retrospect, I started learning then this multi-stakeholder coalition building because I was then in charge of bringing academics and advocates and notable people in foreign policy. I was in charge of helping bring them to a school. So I invited Reza Eslan, who was at UCLA, this big, brilliant Middle East scholar. I had him come over and talk. And so I think I had to sort of learn how to find smart, notable people who were making an impact on foreign policy and bring them to my school, which... At the time, I just thought like, oh, I have to fill a calendar of of events. (laughs) Like, what am I going to do? Taught me now as an advocate, I know how to reach out to academics and use them to achieve a policy goal. So we, Mercy Corps, we have a lot of partnerships with academic institutions where we say, you know, I really need to be able to tell Congress that we can prove that we know how to measure a prevention program. Can you work with us, UCLA or Yale or Princeton, to develop a rigorous research study to be able to prove this in a year, right? So I think I learned how to use academics with advocates, just how all these different actors make up the foreign policy ecosystem, I guess, Mm -hmm. was what I was learning. Mm, That's great. Thanks for sharing that. So two final time for coffee questions. One, very quickly, Madeline, we have all, at least I would say most professionals, 
had ups and downs in our career. And I think it's very easy for someone who would look at the amazing trajectory that you've had and say, oh, wow, I bet Madeline has never had a bad day in her life or has never struggled with a challenging supervisor or colleagues or fill in the blank. Could you share just a very quick example of a time in your professional life when you struggled and more importantly, how you persevered? I mean, I think the 2016, the transition of administrations currently that we're going through in the United States was a really difficult time for me professionally and civil society in America writ large. I think that, you know, my whole professional career really was the Obama administration, which was an administration that was very favorable to civil society input. I got to go to the National Security Council. I could email someone from the State Department, ask for coffee, and they would say yes. And they would hear me out and listen to my opinions. It was in terms of access to government for American civil society, we had very high levels of access. And now we're in a government, you know, working with the administration, the Trump administration, who is much less interested in collective civil society input into policy. It's a much more insular government. They're, you know, making decisions behind closed doors with the sort of civil society organizations that they like, but they are not interested in talking to a hearing from civil society that they don't like. And so when the election happened, I think the biggest challenge was strategy. Like, okay, so in any transition of government, you have to start over in terms of who's in our Rolodex, who do we know, who are the stakeholders, you have to constantly be doing this mapping that we talked about earlier. But right now we're in a very unique moment, I think, in US history, where it's not just a conversation about what's the right policy. It's a conversation about what's the principle. First, do we have access to the people who are making policies? And if you haven't agreed on principle and access, then your policy solution doesn't matter. And I'm someone that loves policy solutions, but the principles of civil society oversight and power, I just sort of, I assumed we had already, (laughs) America had moved on and that all of these things were givens. So I think advocates in civil society across the country right now are having to go back to the drawing board of like, did we just totally mistake the sort of progress towards a transparent government that we thought we had made in the last 20 years? I don't think we have any answers right now, no matter what issue you work on. Mm. We're all struggling with these principles of how to advocate an increasingly closed country. So, yeah, it's a really tough time for civil society activism right now. Yeah. I think that's such a great example, Madeline. And I think it's so important for Java junkies to be aware of it because the challenges in your professional life may not be happening in your office. They may be external to it, but they're affecting your ability to thrive on the job. So, thanks for raising that, Madeline. Final question. If you could go back to Occidental and do it all over again, based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself less on the classes? You've already covered that. Maybe more on just the college experience. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I think if I were to do it all over again, I definitely would have double majored. (laughs) So I planned to double major and then, you know, I got distracted and busy and I studied abroad and I ended up having to like crank my last semester. So I would say double major because this is the time to learn. So I wish I had sort of kept my major in economics or like I said, data science or something like that. So I would say definitely double major. Don't be lazy like I was. And number two would be to look for fellowship opportunities and professional development opportunities because a lot of the opportunities afforded to you now expire based on your age. The Rhodes Scholarship is only available to people who are up to age 23. There's so many fellowships that 
are age-based. And I wish that I had done a few more of those, like in the summers, for example. So make sure you go to your fellowship office on campus, go to your career development office on campus and ask them, like, if I'm interested in doing X, Y, or Z, what are the off-campus fellowships that I should be thinking about? And pursue as many of those as you can because you're, you know, time is going to fly. And that a lot of those are constrained to an age. Well, speaking of time flying, this marathon Time for Coffee episode is wrapping up, Madeline. I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Java Junkie community. <laughs> thank you, Andrea. This was fun. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7 no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.